this more the same one? Or uh, no, it's <coughs> next. Round two. I just realized, uh, I still go, I would record, but I don't have the, a way to record. Is anyone savvy enough that they could? Can you just it's recording right now. You want to put this next to you? That would be That's a good idea. Will that okay. It's on it's on right now. I'm sorry about that. No, that's right. <coughs> yeah, it's on right somewhere. All right. Um, so we are going through the Old Testament and Last week, we got to cover the first um, four books of the Old Testament, and we talked about how in Genesis, uh, God sets the agenda that he is the, uh, the, the purpose, the reason, the, the beginning for all of creation. He is the creator. He is supreme over everything. And we actually started even uh, right after the creation, you have the events of Job. And so we started in Job and we talked about this question of, you know, is God righteous? Does he run the universe rightly? His, how can he forgive sin? How does he let uh, bad things happen to, quote unquote, good people or good things happen to evil people? And we talked about how God does rule the universe rightly and that we need revelation from heaven to understand this life. And we talked about how the righteous response to suffering is uh, to trust and submit to God, and that no no human theory, no science, no uh, philosophy, no way of looking at history can help us make sense of life apart from God revealing the truth. So that's what we talked about in Job, and he kind of sets the trajectory for the rest of the Bible with his wishes. Uh, he wants someone. He wants to be made have someone that can stand in between him and God as a mediator. He wants to have his sin forgiven, and he wants a resurrection. Uh, and so he gets that in the gospel. Just thousands of years later. Um, and then, yeah, we, we did talk about Genesis and God's creation and everything. We talked about uh, sin entering the world and God's promise that he would provide someone who would crush the head of the serpent, who will um, who will undo evil and bring us back to Eden and even better. Uh, we talked about how God is a God who saves those who trust in him. Remember Abraham, he was justified by faith. Um, and that comes in Genesis 15. So we know from the very beginning, it's not that in the Old Testament you're saved by keeping the law, and in the New Testament it's by grace. It's, it's always by grace. It's always by faith. From the very beginning, we talked about how God is God who fights for his people. Did we talk about Jacob and his changing his name to Israel? Okay, good. Um, and then we talked about how God is a God who turns evil to good. And that sort of sets the worldview for the Israelites moving forward. We talked about Exodus and how God rescues his people. In Leviticus, how the question of how can a holy, perfect, righteous judge or God live with an unholy people. And Leviticus bridges helps bridge that gap. Numbers talks about how God refines his people and how he takes this very sinful, one of the worst generations in Israel, and then transforms them in so that the second generation is zealous for God, cares about what he says says they want to follow him and so now we're up to deuteronomy good so far okay all right let's jump back in and we're going to try to get all the way to second samuel and i think i think we'll be able to so 
in Deuteronomy, you're getting the close of the first five books of the Old Testament. So these first five books are all written while the Israelites are, they're given to the Israelites as they're standing on the edge of the promised land waiting to go in. And Moses is setting their worldview and saying, how should you think about the world as you go into the promised land and take possession of it? And Deuteronomy is the capstone, and what Deuteronomy basically is, is a sermon. Uh, Deuteronomy is one of the first sermons in the Bible, and Moses is taking the Ten Commandments, and really the whole law, and giving a sermon on it. A pretty long sermon, actually, on it. And the, the, sort of the, the point of Deuteronomy is that the, the heart of the law is the heart. It's about the heart. It's always been about the heart. Sometimes another misconception people will have is that in the Old Testament, God wanted, uh, you know, it was just about keeping keeping the rules, basically. And it, it was about external morality. But then in the New Testament, there's some kind of shift. And Deuteronomy totally debunks that. Because from, from the beginning, God is saying, it's all about the heart. I want your heart. And where we get that from, uh, does anyone know sort of the, the really famous part of Deuteronomy. Very famous verse or chapter. Deuteronomy 6. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, Deuteronomy 6. So, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4. The verses leading up to it sort of give us this idea in the chapters leading up that it's sort of coming to this pinnacle. He's going to sum up everything. And he says, Hear, O Israel, in verse 4, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Hear it there again. Shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk to them when you sit, when you go by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. And these next two verses are important. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts, doorposts of your house and on your gates. What Deuteronomy ends up showing us is this. God wants our heart in obedience. It's not just about the outward things. It's about loving him. You have it right there in the text. You shall love the Lord your God. And then he talks throughout Deuteronomy about reminding yourself and remembering. And remembering and forget become these two really uh, helpful characterizations of loving God or not loving him. And we often think of, um, oh, I, I forgot to... I don't know. I forgot to take out the trash. I actually did this week. And to bring it in, and the winds blew them everywhere. Uh, I forgot this, or I forgot... That's actually a great example, Aaron, of what I'm about to say. Uh, that was a lack of love for my wife, because she had actually asked me, and it's been an issue, and I failed multiple times at it. Uh, so what, what Deuteronomy starts to characterize is that remembering and reminding ourselves is part of the way that we love God. And so the way, the way Deuteronomy talks about love is it's, it's choosing to God, give God the place of supreme importance in every detail of life. And so as we, as we remind ourselves and remember, forgetting could kind of be tied to the word we use today of apathy, to be apathetic. We talk about this in junior high because junior hires just don't think about God throughout the week. They're not used to that yet. They, and some of them. Some of them do, but a lot of times they're just sort of, oh, I didn't think about God or reading the Bible or anything this week. And so we're trying to remind them that that apathetic attitude towards God, that's actually the way Deuteronomy characterizes it. That's hatred towards God, if that characterizes your life. So Deuteronomy sets kind of the framework of how do you love God day to day? And in chapters 12 through 28, um, I won't go through all of it, but it's really beautiful because it's arranged according to the Ten Commandments. So as you get the commandments in Deuteronomy, they're not random, they're not scattered, they're arranged commandment by commandment, and so you start to be able to interpret laws in light of what they're saying. Like if you remember, um, in the New Testament, 
Paul quotes uh, a verse about not muzzling the ox while it's treading out the grain. And he says, this is about paying your pastor. Like, wait, what? How did you get that from there? Well, it's filed sort of in Deuteronomy under the ninth commandment about, no, not ninth. Help me someone. Thou shalt not steal. What commandment is that? Five is parents. Six is adultery. Murder. Adultery. I think it's Either way, it's filed under the the command not to steal. And so the point is, don't if you take wages from someone that they deserve, you're stealing from them. And so that principle then applies throughout our lives, and that's that's a good example of how we can apply that today. You might think as you go to a restaurant uh, about how you tip, that might influence that, or how you pay someone that works at your house, or not skimping on what you owe them. Or there's a million applications, but um, so. Deuteronomy walks through how do we love God in every detail of our lives. One last important thing to hit before we finish. In chapter 29, it's getting close to the end, and Moses brings all the people together. And he says, you've seen everything God did in verse uh, Two, I'm reading from. You've seen all that the Lord did in, in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all the land, the great trials, the signs, the wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. He says, you, you gotta, you've seen all this, but he, God hasn't actually, and the way he's going to say it later is he hasn't actually circumcised your heart. So keep all this law. By the way, you can't. And so from the very beginning, they, they, they know we need someone that can give us a new heart. Because it's been all about the heart from the beginning, but we don't have the right heart, and so we need a new one. And so that sets up for the whole New Testament idea of regeneration and God giving us a new heart that can now love him and follow him. and um, Just a neat and important thing to, to realize. The, the law is planned to point forward. Um, Let's let's keep moving. So that was that was Deuteronomy. And my wife was talking to me. What was that passage you just read in Deuteronomy? Twenty nine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's he's going to back the bus up. Uh, Twenty nine verses two through about. Uh, four is where it says you don't have eyes serious here. Oh, uh, by the way, that when you're reading the New Testament, now you can key into why Jesus says all the time, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Um, just another example of the Old Testament making the New Testament kind of pop. Um, and one side note, you can't make those connections just for fun because they might be there and they're kind of interesting. There's actually criteria that they need to meet in the sense of you have to prove like, it, uh, what am I, uh, the way I'm trying to say this is sometimes people will say, oh, in the New Testament I saw this thing and it must connect back here in the Old Testament and that's so cool. But we need to ask, did the author really mean for you to make that connection? And there's ways we can tell that. There's the words that they use, the context, the repetition, how unique it is, things like that. But just be careful. I'm not advocating that you go in the New Testament and find every random connection you can that's cool and works. It's still governed by what the author wants us to do. So we're always asking, wait, did Paul want me to think back to this? Did Jesus want me to think back to this other spot? So, All right. After Deuteronomy, we come to what's next? Joshua. And in Joshua, what you start to get in the notes there, um, 
here's the idea behind Joshua, and maybe I'll add add a little bit because I just have that one big idea there. But uh, the idea is this: God is a conqueror. God is a conqueror, and this is a little bit of a scary book, but um, but but it's also wonderful and beautiful because this book is about God fulfilling the promise to Abraham. Do you remember? He says to Abraham, "You're going to have three things: seed, blessing, and." Land, And so this is about God fulfilling the land promise and about how God deals with evil in the world. And so as you read Joshua, although it can be kind of scary or difficult at times, it, it sets the framework for this. God's really going to make the whole world right in the end. Now, when God comes into contact with evil, it is scary, especially when you realize that that should be us receiving the, the judgment. But we do want God to make everything right in the end. And he will. If he can do it in this land of Israel, which he shows in Joshua, then he's going to do it with the whole, the whole world. And so uh, in Joshua, God sets this trajectory of him as a conqueror and that he has dominion over the whole earth. And so let's go to, let's go to chapter 2. Um, this is important. The story of Rahab. If you remember Rahab, she hides the spies, and by doing that, she puts something on display. Does anyone remember what she says to the spies? She says, we have heard. I don't know if you remember, but when we were talking about numbers, I said how the spies would go out from the other countries. And the way Israel is arranged is to show God is central, the God of creation is bringing us back to Eden, he's restoring creation, and the other nations would see that affected by it. Rahab is evidence that that's exactly what happened. She says, "We." let me see if I can find the, uh, the verse here. Um, Ten. Nine. Ten. Uh, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites before... Uh, beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And so they've heard all of what's going on. They get the agenda of what Israel is doing. And, and that's why it's so important. When Rahab hides the spies, she's showing a change of allegiance. It's not just, uh, oh, I don't want these two guys to get killed. It's, I'm not loyal to my government anymore. I'm loyal to you and to your God that we've heard about. And so Rahab gives this picture of this. Yes, God's judgment is terrifying. But for those who have faith in him, think Abraham, Genesis 15, for those who have faith in him, there's, there's a way of escape. He provides a way of escape for those who trust in him. So Rahab is this beautiful picture. And by the way, do you, you all have heard people talk about how, you know, how do we reconcile that God would tell, tell the Israelites to kill uh, people in in the conquest. Have you heard that argument against the Bible? Yes. Um, just a few notes that are, are, I think, neat to keep in mind. Um, you don't have to flip, but Genesis 15, verse 16, all the way back when God's talking to Abraham, he says that you're going to go down to Egypt, your people will go down to Egypt, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God's looking at the people in what would be the promised land, and he sends his own chosen people to Egypt to slavery for 400 years, and one of the reasons is to give the Amorites time to repent. 
for 400 years while his own people are suffering in slavery. And then, also, you realize, too, um, and then they wander for 40 years in the wilderness, and as they're doing that, guess what? They're all seeing what's happening because Rahab says, we heard. So the city also has time to repent as they're seeing, oh, this God really is real. Oh, he's on the march with his people. Oh, he's coming for us. They have time to repent. And even then, you all know the story of Jericho. They march around the walls seven times for seven days. By the way, pointing back to what else happened for seven days was something special on the last day. Creation. They're blowing trumpets all around the ark. The ark represents God to show we have God with us, the God of creation. He's who's fighting against you. And they have seven days of these trumpets blowing, marching all around for them to see, okay, they're going to repent. Are you going to repent? Are you going to, you know, so when you point to these things, it's, there's all those facts is interesting. And then also only three cities are mentioned as being destroyed. So it's not like they're going through the land and just slaughtering everyone that they see. There's three specific cities, Jericho, Ai, and Hazor, that are mentioned. So I don't know, just if someone brings that up, just to keep in your mind that uh, God is really patient and really gracious and really kind and always provides a way of of escape from his judgment. So, uh, But Joshua also does show what it looks like when a holy God comes in contact with evil, persistent evil. And there's a note. Let's hit two more places in Joshua. Uh, Joshua kind of, in the middle and at the end, ends on this ominous note. Uh, do you see, what's what's your chapter title in chapter 13 for Joshua? Do you have a chapter heading? Land still to be conquered. Yeah, land still to be conquered. So God gives them this land, they're to conquer it, they're to fill the whole thing, they're to take it. But there's actually a bunch of land that isn't conquered. So do they fulfill the goal? They don't. They don't. And, and by the way, the, the New Testament picks up on this, and Revelation even does, that the conquest was never completed, and it won't be completed until Jesus comes back. That's why he comes back on a war horse. He's going to make conquest on the whole earth and make it right and good and perfect. So uh, even in the middle of Joshua, you start to realize, okay, there's some issues here. This isn't all resolved. And then at the end, it actually is, is ominous as well. If you flip uh, all the way to Joshua, says pretty much the same thing that Moses said. Um, 2419 we we all uh, have the I think I have this verse up in my house somewhere um, choose this day whom you will serve yes but then he says uh, in verse 19 but Joshua said to the people you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God he is a jealous God he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods then he will turn to you harm and consume you after having done you good you are not able same thing that Moses said you don't have a, a renewed heart that's what you need and so there's this really ominous note at the ending and at the very end of the book you start getting these lists of these different people that died and basically Joshua is showing All the things restraining the people from totally breaking out into apostasy and evil are being, they're dying off. All these people that were holding them back. And so you turn the page to Judges, and now you're just in the, uh, I think I, uh, nosedive is the word I used. We did, in junior high, we we did some of this. And it's just a nose, it's a tailspin. It's a a downward spiral in Judges. So uh, we are up to Judges now, and Judges is emphasizing this. 
that the Israelites need a perfect king. They need someone who can unite them, who can rule over them, and who can be perfect. They need a king. The phrase repeated over and over and over again in Judges. Anyone know? If you've, if you've read it, you probably might remember. There was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's repeated over and over again in the book. And it, it's really in Judges about God preserving his nation in order to bring them through this really dark period to get to to the kingdom. And it highlights their need for a king. Everything Joshua warned about does come true. Uh, and so as you as you look at Judges, the you start to see let's um, you get a repeat of their how they didn't actually drive everyone out of the land, and that's gonna create problems throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament. And your first judge, if you go all the way over to chapter three, is um, is Othniel, and he begins this this spiral, which you may have heard of, of where the people basically um, there is. Uh, hopefully, I'll, I'll I'll do this right. Uh, things are going well, and then the people sin. Uh, they. They call out for help. I'm struggling for words here. They call out for help. God sends a judge or a savior. Things go well again after he saves them. And then they go back into sin again. And so this cycle just spirals downward through the book of Judges. And Othniel starts it out, and he's he's sort of the the top of the spiral. He does battle honorably. He does battle on an international level. Uh, there, are, there are things about the way Othniel operates that, hey, he's not so bad. He's even from the tribe of Judah, which is where the Messiah is going to be coming from. And so from there, it just gets bad. You have Ehud, who's shady and crafty and not painted in a good light. Uh, and, and it spirals down and down and down. And you keep getting this repetition of, uh, there's everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, and a king is needed. You get all the way to uh, chapter 8, and tell me if this language sounds familiar to you. Um, I'm reading from verse 24, but if you're not there, I'm not going to read the name. Uh, and blank said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we'll willingly give them. And they spread a cloak. Every man threw in his earrings of his spoil and the weight of the earrings that was 1,700 shekels. Does this sound familiar to another story? Where they take off their earrings and their bracelets and they throw them in? Yeah. Yeah. What The reason there's there's echoes here of that verbally is because what they're showing is by the time of the judges... They're repeating the exact same thing again. Not good. Sort of the low point of Israel's history, and they're going right back into it again. Let's move us all the way forward to... uh, Samson's not a hero, by the way. He's painted... Okay, you're all shaking your head, yes, so we're not even going to talk... He's not painted in a good light. Uh... But if you get to chapter 18, here's something really interesting. So it shows this spiral going down. Uh, chapters 19, 20, and 21 are R-rated, very R-rated, um, and basically showing that the Israelites become as bad as the Canaanites that were in the land that God has been judging. It's like it's totally obliterated. And so, But in 18, this is the sucker punch of the whole book. 
Um, the tribe of Dan breaks off, makes their own worship system, and sets up their own priesthood, which is bad. Very bad. And the, uh, verse 30, chapter 18, And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests of the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So all the way until the exile, the Danites have this special... Uh, priestly system which is totally aberrant to God and the first priest of their system is Jonathan son of Gershom son of Moses this chronologically probably would fall further back in Judges this is Moses' grandson and the sucker punches yeah it's been getting worse and worse and worse oh yeah except from the very beginning Moses' grandson in one generation down is becoming a priest for a separate tribe and like the worst of the worst and it's just this oh, it's so bad do you guys have a note in your bible at all i have a note in in my esv uh 1830 anybody have a footnote there my footnote says or manasseh the Hebrew scribes were so, uh, we think at least the best we can tell, they were so embarrassed to write Moses that they put a little footnote, because they would never want to change, they put a little footnote and said, uh, maybe it should be Manasseh. Because like, it couldn't have been Moses' grandson, but it was, that's the whole point. Uh, so Judges, Judges is the dark, dark book. Judges is the, I don't know, the, the mud pit that the diamond of Ruth sits in. So Ruth happens Ruth happens at the time of the judges. And you get this first line and it's already supposed to feel ominous. In the days when the judges ruled, strike one, there was a famine in the land that's tied to the curses in Deuteronomy for disobeying the covenant, strike two. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Okay, man of Bethlehem and Judah has been repeated a couple other times from Judges, and every time that's brought up, it's like the worst possible story, cutting up prostitutes and sending them out into the... It's just terrible. So, strike three, oh, and strike four, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So, not in the land anymore, going somewhere else. It's like bad, 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 bad. Then you've got the death of, of Elimelech. Um, it's just... It op the opening of Ruth is like, this is just going to be... A terrible story. There's no way that this is going to go well. But that's not what happens. Uh, it's a beautiful story that talks about how God moves his plan forward, even in the very darkest seasons, through faithful believers in him. And so what ends up happening... Oh, uh, by the way, this is a neat... Kind of trivia, but, but really neat also. In the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes right after Proverbs. Any guesses why? What does Proverbs end with? What? Yeah, you got Proverbs 31 woman, and they put Ruth right after saying, oh yeah, and here's an example of her. Interesting. Um, so I, with, with Ruth, what you have happening is she is characterized as a Moabite woman, which is not a good thing. She's not an Israelite. She's outside of 
the family of Israel. And yet she ends up being included because of this man named Boaz, who's characterized as a faithful, godly man in Israel during a time when nobody is faithful or godly. And he is just going about his business, doing what honors the Lord. And what he ends up doing um, is essentially giving up everything to care for and love for Ruth. It's a very sacrificial and heroic act that he does to to take her as his wife. And the book ends, probably the most important part of the book, is the list of names in the last little bit. Because uh, you all probably know who ends up coming from Ruth's line. David, which eventually leads to Jesus. And so... Basically, Ruth is telling us, while everything is going totally wrong in the time of Judges, that promise all the way back from Genesis 3.15 that someone would come, that we know from Abraham is going to be a king who's going to restore creation. Remember, he's going to tie his donkey to the vine. The, the produce is going to be restored. Everything's going to be made back to Eden. That king, that promise, it's not dead. It's still happening, but God's working silently behind the scenes where you wouldn't expect to find it with a Moabite who shouldn't even be included in God's people, but God already starts to say, yeah, I, I'm, remember we said last time, I'm a missionary God. I, I want all of them, whoever will come, let him come. And so he folds in Ruth and Boaz, and they become part of the line of Jesus, and that leads to David. I think another circle back to that promise is... Mm-hmm. Both mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like I wanted to say one other thing on Ruth. Let's let's move on, and if I if I think of it, we'll come we'll come back. But well, yeah, he starts to kind of set even this pattern that we see. Of, uh, of Jesus fulfilling, absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's move over into First and Second Samuel. So, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles—they're all setting this theology of of king, a theology of king. What what is a king? Who is the real king? What will the real king be like? And 1 Samuel in particular starts describing what are the characteristics of God's true king. Judges has shown us that God's people need a king, and Ruth has shown us the family line that he's going to come from, and Samuel starts to show us what what character traits are going to characterize this king. The whole first section of First Samuel is basically showing, uh, you have Samuel coming onto the scene. Samuel is, uh, Samuel is part of this paradigm of, of prophets that come that are, um, one of my professors uses the word kingmakers. Um, Samuel, John the Baptist, uh, they, they set this pattern of they come before the king and they anoint the king and they put him into place. So you get that at the first seven chapters. But then as you get into uh, further into the book, what it's basically showing is that God is the true king. And any real king is going to rule under God as king. There, there won't, that's, that's the main difference between uh, the kingship in Israel and the kingship 
anywhere else. It's that God's real true king is going to acknowledge that God himself is, is the king. And by the way, as you read a book like 1 Samuel, as you see the characteristics that a king must be, what we start to realize is Jesus is the one that fulfills ultimately all of these things because we start to see Saul's a, a complete failure. David is a complete failure. Solomon is a complete failure. And then after that, no one can put the kingdom back together again. It's totally shattered. And it's not until Jesus comes, he fulfills every aspect of what it means to be a king. And so um, let's, let's just hop over to, um, to 16. I know I, we are skipping forward quite a bit, but I think what, what would be good to hit is in 16... Um, this is where David is anointed king. And he Samuel comes to Jesse and he goes through the different sons. And, oh, it must be this one. It must be this one. And finally, um, notice in verse 6, when they came to him, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This has got to be the guy. Same same kind of mistake they made with Saul. You know, he's tall. He's handsome. That. That's the one. That's, you know, uh, the American idol of Israel, or Israel idol, right? Uh, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. The true king is going to be a man who has a right what? Heart. A man after God's own heart. And you keep going. The Lord hasn't chosen all of these. David finally comes in. And David is anointed as king. Um, Andrew, yeah. What do you think it means that David was a man after God's own heart? <laughs> I think that's a hard question uh, to pin down. Maybe to say he. He wanted to know and love God. He was a failure, but he wanted God. He he loved what God loved. Um, I don't know. Any See, first first yeah, I God think because he was a shepherd and he was taking care of his uh, parents' ships and he learned from there and he really wanted to follow God's heart. Mm-hmm. So that's because he was there and he watch and he learned from that I think he wanted that and God gave him that hmm. yeah that's mine yeah no that's very helpful yes um, I don't he know. nailed it too when he said a, a, a sacrifice that you don't want but a contrite heart I mean in the Psalms it reflects a lot of what you were talking about earlier that what God was looking for was a, a right heart toward him I mean he wanted to see the Lord in the sanctuary I mean all those things that reflect the heart in the Psalms you know I think make up David's mm-hmm. You know, position as far as his heart, right heart before the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I, I think another thing is is love for God's word. If you think of Isaiah, um, there's a place in there where excuse me, the third through I forget. Anyway, um, it says that um, God says, "I made the heavens and the earth and whatever, and I declare it." And then He says, um, "Is that?" Who I will I will bless the person who has a humble and contrite heart and trembles at my word. And that's all he says. Humble and contrite heart and trembles at my word. And so those kind of things. 
So you you bringing that up. I want to study this more. I'm going to say this, but just know I'm I'm not a hundred percent convinced on this one. But I do think it's accurate enough to bring it up to you. Um, the implication of David picking stones is implying and pointing towards the fact that the true king would would know and tremble at God's word. He was supposed to write the law out, and and David is saying this Philistine who reviles Yahweh. He deserves to be stoned. So let's let's do this with stones. And so he's already evidencing this heart that, that knows God's word and that loves God's word and that um, yeah, I, you I, you knew, uh, you're right on point with that, I think. So one other important thing, we don't talk about this uh, a ton, uh, but it's important for how we understand Jesus. Um, the rest of, of 1 Samuel is about David being refined. And you start to get an idea, it's played out in the Psalms too, that, that God's true king will have, uh, it's called corporate solidarity, or he will stand in representation of his people. Um, what happens to the king, he's, he's able to represent his people. And so that idea starts to get fleshed out in David and the other kings, and it's important because when Jesus is on the cross, we are, we're counted as there with him. He's able to pay for our sins because the king stands in the place of his people. And so that's sort of an important idea that we don't talk about a whole lot. And um, I just want to hit one last thing that I, I think is really neat. And it's a good example of how the New Testament might not make, it, you can understand it, but it doesn't make perfect sense until you see the backdrop. So uh, as David is refined, three tests He's in the wilderness, going through the wilderness, running around, and uh, we can maybe even do this just with the, the chapter headings. Uh, 21, chapter 21 of 1 Samuel. What is that heading up there? Yes. What, uh, Judy, give me that again. David and the, the holy bread. So the first kind of trial, test, temptation of David is is related to bread. And how are you going to handle this, David? And, and I, I'm, he fails pretty miserably at all of these. Uh, the next one has to do with, in 23, uh, 21 and 22 span the, the bread one. In 23 and 24, David uh, basically is put in a situation where the question becomes, do you trust God's word or are you going to go off of what you think is best? And so you have uh, bread in the first one, then you have God's word, where you trust his word, and then in 25, you, uh, you get a test that deals more with uh, presumption. Will you, will you take the kingship before it's been officially handed over to you? Will you presume on God to do that? And so he goes through these three tests in the wilderness and fails them. Someone else went out to the wilderness, went through three tests relating to bread, God's word, and presumption, and passed them and proved, I'm the real king, where David failed. Pretty neat, huh? Yeah. Um, so that, that, those verses in Matthew, sure, they give us a pattern for how to defeat sin. Absolutely, Jesus always defeats sin perfectly. But it's bigger than just, hey, here's an example of how to fight sin. It's, hey, here's the king of everything, and here's proof that he's king. It's, it's really, really neat. Second um, Samuel. Second Samuel keeps this theology of kingship going, um, and 
we're really, I, I just, the main thing I want to mention uh, is two spots in 2 Samuel. Uh, chapter 7, and then we'll go through David's sin with Bathsheba just a little bit, but chapter 7 is where you get the Davidic covenant. And this is the most important covenant, I think I put a period at the end of that statement, uh, period. And I'll show you, I think I'll be able to show you why. Um, when Jesus comes, Matthew sums it up by saying, Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David. And implication being, the prom- he's going to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, which funnel through to David, which are going to be fulfilled in Christ. Now, David's covenant is the covenant that, that rules all the other covenants. It, uh, the, the person who can fulfill the Davidic covenant can fulfill all the previous covenants. Let me show you. In chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, David wants to build a house for the Lord, and Nathan is to go up and tell David, you want to build me a house? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel to this day. And as you keep going down, look now at verse 9. I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies. Now, and I will make for you a great name. Ring any bells? We mentioned it last week, but I know we, we did it quickly. Great name. There was a group of people that said, we will make a name for ourselves. What, Atlanta? Tower of Babel. Babel. And God then comes to Abraham in chapter 12 and says, I will make for you a great name. And so, I will make for you a great name like the great ones of the earth. Abrahamic covenant mentioned. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. A place and planting them? Exodus. I'll fulfill the promises of the land promised to Abraham and everything that was supposed to happen through the Exodus so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. All the stuff that Joshua wasn't able to fulfill, person who can do, who can fulfill the covenant, yep, he'll hit that too. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. As formerly, like in the judges. Those violent men? Nope, no more, not with this king. From that time that I, well, and it's explicit here, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest. I don't know that we hit this a whole lot, but someone's name means rest. Does anyone know? Noah's name meant rest. And his mom names him Noah and then says, maybe this will be the one that can give us rest. Could Noah give them rest? Even after the whole world was wiped with a clean slate, he still fell into sin. So the one that can wield the David covenant can also give the rest that Noah was supposed to be able to bring. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come for your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's going to be a king who comes, who sits on a throne that will never, ever, ever be destroyed. He'll fulfill everything that the Old Testament pointed to, Abrahamic covenant, rest, uh, planting his people in the land, everything. And his throne will be established forever. Important covenant, yes? Yes. Very, very, very important. Jesus is the one that fulfills all of this. And he proves it in his first coming, and he's going to bring it to completion totally in his second coming. Now, for a moment, it looks like David is totally the guy. Because if you look in verse 8, it says... uh, After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. 
That was like chapters and chapters and chapters of battles previously. Now, David, wielding the Davidic covenant, just walks right through them. He defeats the Philistines, he subdues them, he defeats Moab and subdues them. Uh, he also defeated Hadadezer and Rehob and Zobah, and he goes on and on and on. And it gets to a point where it says that he went all the way to... Oh no, I'm, I'm lost, I'm losing it now. Um... Looking for the phrase where it talks about he went to the river. Which chapter again? Chapter 8. Sorry. I, I... Verse 3. Did I just blow past it? Yes, thank you. Uh... I think that's it, Dave. I, I'll, I'll need to go back and check. I'm sorry, but it does. What it basically says is that David conquers the land all the way to the river. The river land was never conquered out that far. Um, it's basically showing the person who can wield the Davidic covenant can actually take over all of the land that God promised because he mentions all the way to the river in his land promise previously, but no one ever gets that far. And so it's basically saying David's just ticking off his enemies one after another after another. It's one sentence to show it. And oh yeah, and by the way, he got all the way to the river. Um, so the Davidic covenant actually works, it shows. But then you all know what happens with David and Bathsheba and um, it's way worse at least than I ever realized maybe you all know what I'm about to mention but um, the implications starting in verse or in chapter 10 um, in chapter 10 you get uh, the commander of David's army is, is going out and he doesn't go out with his army and then he he does go out in verse. He does go out with his people and he fights against the enemy, and because he's able to fulfill the Davidic covenant, he just wipes them out immediately. But then he doesn't go out again, and the question is well, David, why aren't you going out with your men? You proved that. If you do go out with them, you just wipe everybody out immediately. Why aren't you going out with your men? And then you get this ominous opening in chapter 11 of in the springtime, when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. What? Where are you, David? They win when you're there. So you already have this idea that this is not, um, this isn't a happenstance thing. This is, there's something going on already. Um, in David's heart, it seems like. So David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. But David remained at Jerusalem. And then it just gets weirder and weirder. It happened late one afternoon. David rose up from his couch and walking on his roof. The language is that he's pacing back and forth. It's not just like a nice little evening stroll. He's up there for a reason. It's purposeful. It's not normal that you would go up there and just pace. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Also not normal. Not normal to do it in the evening. Not normal to do it in sight. The whole implication here is something's going on. This is weird. This isn't just happenstance. And sees that she's very beautiful. He sent, the idea of sent is, or the idea of inquired there is not like, hmm, what, what's your name? The idea of inquire is come here now. Um, and even his, even his servant is sort of warning him. 
And there's a neat little uh, example of paying attention to, de- to detail that's helpful. Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah the Hittite, one of your special forces guys that's out there. Isn't, this is his wife. What are, you, what are you doing? And that servant in the next verse, verse 4, so David sent messengers, plural. What happened to the messenger that told him not to do it? We don't know, but it doesn't sound like it's that messenger that's going. So David sent... Uh, David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now, here's where it gets really bad. He brings Uriah back, his special forces guy. And do you remember, he gets him drunk and Uriah still won't go back to his house and be with his wife and the implication is that a drunk Uriah is more godly than a sober David. And the thing that's so, so... he then sends Uriah back onto the battlefield, and you know the plan is that they're going to draw back, and Uriah is going to lead the charge in. Well, it mentions earlier in the chapter that they're sieging the city. You charge a city when you're sieging it. You wait for it to run out of resources. You do, it's just not a normal military procedure. Also, what, with, with Uriah leading the charge, Uriah's, what David's setting him up is that um, Uriah thinks that David was testing him and bringing him back and getting him drunk to see, are you really loyal to me? And so Uriah's going back out there thinking, he tested me, I proved myself, now I get to lead the battle charge, and when everyone pulls back, he's looking back going, come on, let's go, I'm the courageous one for David. And you see how duplicitous it really, it, 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 it's even worse than we, we realize. And so uh, it, it actually gets even worse. He, Uriah is killed, And then David actually has to have the assault continue to go to cover it up. So more people are killed because of David's cover-up. And then, have you ever noticed when, 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 the, um, when the, verse 26, chapter 11, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now we read that and think, yeah, David's really shady. But think of being an Israelite who has no idea what's going on behind the scenes, and all they see is this war hero special forces guy dies, and gracious King David takes the wife into his house. What, what, he's like his grandpa Boaz. Good job. Do you see how? It's just disgusting. And so the point in chapter 11 is David is not the guy. He's not the king. I'm so sorry. I thought, I, I'm so sorry. I said if you could, The point is that David is not the guy. He's not this king. And his kingdom is going to fall apart. Um, and we'll see in kings, and as we go forward, we'll see how his kingdom just shatters. Because... Sure, he's a man after God's own heart, but he's still sinful, deeply sinful. Um, but praise the Lord that he saves people that are that deeply sinful. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. Uh, do we pray or you'll pray? Okay. But I just, man, I tell you, I don't know about you guys, but I was actually crying when you were talking about David because you, it's so horrible what he did. And um, sometimes we gloss over it, like you said. And I'm just blessed to have the Old Testament come to life the way you brought it, Andrew. Thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to next time. Um, don't worry about the flyover thing. You're hitting all points that are just wonderful for us to understand. So thank you. Uh, just really quick for five minutes, let's uh, just uh, pray for one another. I know there's things on your heart that you want to let God have, and uh, sometimes corporate prayer helps. So if there's anything 
that's weighing on you or an update of a prayer request, uh, feel free to share it, and we'll just close in prayer. Yeah, okay, who wants to go first? <laughs> Sherry. Pray for our neighbor, Art. Um, he's had a lot of health issues, and um, basically he's dying any day. He's been, I think, coming comatose all week, and his, his wife, they're Filipino Catholics, and she said, just, just pray for us. Thank you. God, God, we will do that. It's, it's been very heavy on her. He's, they've been expecting him to die since August, so it's really hard. My brother's name is Bob. He's not a Christian. And um, after my dad died, he got mad about something. And so I don't know talk to him and over here. It's been really hard. He's not coming to Thanksgiving, first time ever. So I'm sending him a card. Just help me to write the right words. We'll do, Karen. Thank you. Roberta. My friend that we prayed about before, who is mother has brain cancer, she has to So there'll be memorial and all that stuff yeah, going on. Okay. Dan Anselmo made it through open heart surgery. He's Dan recovery. Anselmo, yeah, update. He had, he had uh, surgery Friday morning, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Open heart and open heart. made it through fine. Yeah, he made it through fine. He's he's in the he's in that nasty place where you have the tube in, you know, yeah. he's in mm-hmm. in the bed. So just keeping him comfortable and content, you know. And Sam, how about you? Should we pray for you? Just thanks. Just lots of praise God and thank you. What's happening next week? Uh, I'm going in tomorrow morning to the mission. So all the background and stuff passed. I've got my social security card, driver's license, birth certificate, military records. And and the, the whole church, you know, sent all these guys to, to be accountable with me for three weeks. going on a month now, sober. And I've had a guy with me, like, around the clock. So it's just been so much fun. Okay. Yeah. Well, the journey continues. I, yeah. Keep praying. We'll be your prayer warriors. Please. Anyone else? Visit me. One more. Yeah, Steve. We're living with my mom who's at the end of hospice, and we're having difficulty with pain management right now. It's mm-hmm. very difficult. Okay. So wisdom and just care for her. Is there one more? I'll open it up for one more because we got to pray. Okay, let's do it. Dear Father in heaven, I'll just lift these up uh, due to time. And we, we, we know you hear all these requests. We know that you hear them even in our hearts. It's like Jesus said when Lazarus was, <laughs> I say this out loud only because others need to hear as well. And, and Lord, we do. We want to all be engaged here in lifting up these prayer requests. And Lord, put them on our hearts to continue to pray. Lord, we want to pray for um, Sherry's uh, neighbor, Art, uh, who is dying. And uh, he and his wife have asked for prayer. And they are Catholics. We're not sure of the standing before you uh, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But, Lord, we do pray um, that you would be glorified in this situation. We would ask for healing, as they are asking. But, Lord, we want you to be glorified in the midst of that. If you so choose to do that, may you be lifted up. May our Lord Jesus be lifted up in their hearts. So we leave that completely in your hands and, and use um, Sherry and Randy and, and others around them that know you for your end, your glory. And Lord, we also uh, lift up Karen's brother and Karen and the whole family and the pain that they are feeling right now. And uh, 
some of the fallout, perhaps, you know, uh, from what has transpired over this last year. Uh, but Lord, we do pray for Bob. We just ask, Father, that you open his heart, just like you did to some of the nations, like you did to Rahab. Open his heart, Father, to you by your spirit. Let him see your love for him. Let him see what you did for him to be in your presence. Lord, help him to desire that, to see his need for it, and to know that it can only be through our Lord Jesus. We pray for healing in that family, for your glory. Use Karen, use others in the family that know you uh, to be peacemakers, Lord, to, to let your love infiltrate the entire family dynamic. We ask that for your glory. May you be lifted up. Same thing with uh, Roberta's friend that passed away, the neighbor. And Lord, we just ask that in the ceremonies that are to follow or uh, the, um, the memorial, the uh, funeral, uh, just the, the family dynamic, that you would come up in a real way in the hearts of them, the family members, uh, just to face eternity. Lord, and what, where, where, how are they going to face it without our Lord Jesus? Be glorified in that and comfort the family as well. Lord, we thank you, Father, for Sam. Thank you for bringing him back again to our church, and we just want to be here with him. We want to stand with him in the trenches. We all have strongholds of sin in our life, Lord. Ours are just not as obvious as Sam's has been. I mean, I'm, when, you, when you have addictions that are obvious, it's just more evident, but we all have them in little hidden sort of ways. But Lord, we want to stand with Sam and we lift him up before your throne and just pray for these next, I don't know, six months or however long he's going to be at the Orange County Rescue Mission. We ask for your hand of protection on him. We ask that you surround him, Father, with your angels. May you deliver him from evil. And Lord, we ask, Father, by the grace of our Lord Jesus and by your spirit that you lead him in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Thank you, Father, for the successful surgery for Dan. And uh, we just thank you, Father, that uh, we know that this whole church was praying for him. And you are magnified in that. And, Lord, we just ask now for your healing touch during the recovery period. And just comfort him and let him know that he's in your loving hands, his whole family. Father, we uh, also want to lift up the Newcombs. And just pray, Father, for wisdom as, as uh, Steve's mom is failing and in, in, in a very painful way. Please allow them to know what to do, to comfort her, uh, to alleviate the pain, and also just to be there reminding her of your presence and your love for her. Uh, we know you choose to use us uh, in this world during this time. And uh, Lord, use the Newcombs. Use Steve and Charlotte. Lord, to, to help her in a special way right now for your glory. And Lord, again, in our hearts, may the things that we heard this morning go with us. Help us to not forget uh, the lessons that you are teaching through Andrew. We thank you for your word. Thank you for what we've heard. Ask your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen.